Well, hey, good morning, everybody. How's everybody this morning? Having a good day so far? Welcome. My name's Clay. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, thanks for coming out this morning. It's great to see you. Um, I usually hang out up front after the service, and so if I haven't had a chance to meet you, come on up and uh, say hi to me. If we've had a chance to meet, come and say hi again, and I'd love to just chat with you guys uh, for a couple of minutes. So as uh, it's been mentioned, we're starting a new series today that we're calling Set Apart, and uh, we're looking at a number of different aspects, both of of God, but also of our lives in which God is set apart, in which he's different uh, than we are, in which he's different than the creation that he made, and also us. What does it mean that we are set apart and that God has called us to live lives uh, that are set apart from the rest of the world, and how does that affect the way that we live? And I'm excited about this. I'm looking forward to it. And we're starting today by looking at God. And if you are a follower of Jesus, if you actually, if you've just been to church even a few times, you're probably familiar with this concept of God as being greater than anyone or anything else in all of creation. And so, you know, as the little video is showing, ultimately, God is greater than even death. He's greater than sickness. He's greater than the government. He's greater than we are. He's greater than all of our fears. Uh, and, and we know that, uh, in some sense, at an intellectual level. Uh, but what does it mean if we know that in our day-to-day -day lives. And what I want to do this morning is look at a couple of encounters in the Bible that different people had with the greatness, with the holiness, with the awesomeness, with the majesty of God, and see how that impacted and affected and changed their lives. And I want to start with one that occurred uh, in the Old Testament about 750 years before Jesus was born. And it's an encounter that a prophet named Isaiah had with the holy God. And so I just want to start reading in, in Isaiah chapter 6, starting at verse 1. And Isaiah writes, he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were the seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. And if you're not familiar with uh, the history of Israel, if you haven't memorized all of the different kings of Israel and whether they were good or bad, whether they followed after God or not, King Uzziah was actually one of Israel's better kings. He might not have been on the level of Israel's greatest king, King David, or perhaps Israel's second greatest king, King Solomon, but Uzziah was a pretty good king. Most of his life, he followed after God. He led the people in following after God. And for most of his reign, it was a time of relative peace and prosperity for the people of Judah. And, and Judah was actually the southern part, the southern half of the, uh, of the nation of Israel. And so he was a pretty good king. Towards the end of his reign, he turned away from God a little bit, and actually uh, the Assyrians, who were one of Israel's enemies, were beginning to threaten Israel during the end of King Uzziah's reign. And that's kind of the background for this vision uh, that Uzziah sees. And so, I'm sorry, that, that Isaiah sees. And so when the king 
of Judah dies, you've got the king of Assyria threatening. He's, he's threatening to come in and take over. And so from the perspective of the people, it's a time of national crisis, right? In the few cases where our presidents have died in office or have been shot, it's a time of, of fear for us as a people. And so for the nation of Judah at this time, it's a time of fear, it's a time of uncertainty because their king has died and a foreign king is threatening them. And what Isaiah is seeing is that while Uzziah, the human king, may be dead, God is saying, I, your divine king, am very much alive and I'm seated on the throne. So you're in this time of fear and doubt and questioning and uncertainty and this time of national crisis, but God is saying, I am still alive and I am still on the throne and you can trust in me because I've ultimately got everything under control. And Isaiah says that he saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. And, and we don't really in this country do royalty very well, right? Actually, in fact, we intentionally don't do royalty in this country. We have a president rather than a king because when we broke off from England, we didn't want to have a king anymore. We didn't want to have that monarch, that absolute ruler. We wanted to have a president who in some sense we can control because we can vote him out of office every four years. So we don't think of royalty all that often, although we sometimes have this kind of strange fascination with the British royalty where we're very excited about Princess Diana or you know Kate Middleton, whatever it may be. But as a country, for the most part, we don't really focus on royalty so that when we see this picture of this king exalted and high and lifted up, in some sense it's just words to us. But if we stop and think about it for a minute and realize in that culture, in that society, to have the king high and lifted up, it's saying his throne is above all other thrones. He is the ultimate, the greatest king that there ever was or ever could be in the universe. He's all-powerful. No one is greater than he is. And then Isaiah says, the train of his robe filled the temple. His clothing was majestic. It's glorious. It's incredible. His train, that his robe is so big and so majestic that it's filling the entire temple. And Isaiah has this picture of this king who's unlike any other king. And he's just awed by that picture. And then he sees the seraphim, which were a class of angels, and he sees how they interact with God. And he describes them as, as having six wings. Now, two of those wings make sense because they flew with those two wings. But the other four wings only make sense in light of the majesty and the power and the holiness and the glory of God. Two of those wings they used to cover their faces so that they wouldn't look at the, at the glory of God. They wouldn't see him with their faces. And with two, they covered their feet. And in those days, their feet would represent their creatureliness. And angels are creatures created by God. So by covering their feet, they're emphasizing their humility, their respect, their submission for God. So even though we'd look at it and say, what's the point of the extra four wings? They don't need them to fly. Those extra four wings were part of their reverence, their worship, their respect, their humility before this unbelievably majestic and powerful God. And Isaiah is saying, I see God and he is in a category 
by himself. He is set apart. He's unique. He's different. He's greater than everything else in the universe. And actually later on in the book of Isaiah, God says to Isaiah, he says, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Says the Holy One. And then in this passage in Isaiah 6, you've got the angels crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy. This triple repetition is their way of emphasizing the holiness of God. If we were writing it, we'd put it in boldface type, we'd underline it, we'd put it in flashing neon lights, whatever it may be. But in those days, if they wanted to emphasize something, they'd repeat it multiple times. And in fact, there's a couple of places in the Old Testament. There's one in the book of Genesis where there's this battle going on and some of the soldiers fall into some tar pits and those pits were described as pits pits. That word pit was repeated. It's kind of like they were very pity pits. And to us, that's kind of strange to say they were pits pits. But for them, it made a lot of sense because they're saying these are pretty awesome, amazing, and terrifying pits that these people fell into. There's another place where pure gold is referred to as gold gold, not just any gold, but gold gold. And what's so amazing as you read this, as you hear what Isaiah is saying that the angels were saying about God is there was this triple repetition, holy, holy, holy. And this is the only time in scripture in which something is repeated three times. The only time in scripture where anything is ever repeated three times is both here and in the book of Revelation where the holiness of God is referred to three times. And so what Isaiah is saying is that God is more holy than anything else is itself. That gold was gold gold, but God is holy, holy, holy. And so Isaiah is painting this picture for us of an unbelievably incredible, majestic, awesome, set-apart, different, unique kind of a God. And this concept of holiness is so difficult to define because in some sense it's foreign to us, which is actually at the heart of what it means to be holy. Something that is holy is foreign. It's different. It's unique. It's set-apart. It's in a class or a category by itself. It's uncommon. And what Isaiah is saying is that God is holy. He is unique. There is no one or nothing else that is in the same class and category that God is. And then Isaiah responds as he sees the holiness of God. And look what happens here. In verse five, Isaiah says, woe to me, I'm ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king, whom the angels can't even look at. My eyes have seen the king, the Lord Almighty. This vision of the holy God just undoes Isaiah. As he puts it, woe is me. He's calling down a curse on himself. He's falling apart because he's had this encounter with the holy God, and God didn't have to say anything in order to make it happen. All that had to happen was Isaiah had to be in the presence of this holy God, and that was enough to completely rock Isaiah's world. And I want to come back to that in just a few minutes, but before we do, I want to jump ahead about 800 years 
to an encounter that Jesus had with some of his followers when they were taking a boat ride. And if, you, if you're uh, familiar with the life of Jesus, he would spend a lot of time with his followers, whom we would call disciples. He spent a lot of time teaching them. And in this particular case, he'd spent an entire day teaching them on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And he'd gone through a number of the different parables with which some of us are familiar. For example, the parable of the sower and the soils. And so at the end of the day, everybody's tired. And Jesus says, hey, we're going to go across the Sea of Galilee to the other side. And this, the, the action here occurs in Mark chapter 4, and I want to pick it up there. So uh, Mark writes, he says, that day when evening came, Jesus says to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. And there were other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. And the disciples woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? And, and as I was looking at this, I realized there are an awful lot of what we might consider to be unnecessary details in this story, right? It starts off and Mark says, it was evening. Well, who cares if it was evening or if it was daytime? A storm could have risen in, in the evening or, or, or in the day. They took Jesus, Mark says, they took Jesus just as he was, which, which is implying Jesus didn't have time to change his clothes before he got in the boat. Well, what does that have to do with the story? There's nothing about what Jesus was wearing. He wasn't, it wasn't like he forgot to take a life preserver or, or, or something like that. Why is there that unnecessary detail in, the, in there? There's other boats that are around them, yet they don't talk about anybody that's in those other boats. So why does Mark include that detail of those other boats? And then you've got Jesus sleeping on a cushion, so I guess he's comfortable, right? He's sleeping in the stern. He's sleeping in the back of the boat. What difference does it make that he's in the back of the boat versus the middle of the boat or versus the front of the boat? Why, why all of those unnecessary details? And if you're, if you're a reader of good literature, you know that when someone is writing a fictional story, they like to include a lot of details in order to help you to feel like it's real, like it's something that actually did or at least could have happened. But what's interesting about that is it's only been the last 200 or so years that fiction writers have included those realistic sort of details. Before that, they wouldn't include any unnecessary details in their stories. And this was written 2,000 years ago in a time when unnecessary details were not included in fictional stories. And I think what Mark is trying to do here is help us to understand this is not a fictional story. This is something that actually happened. And he got his information from eyewitnesses. Somebody in the boat told Mark that Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat on a cushion. And if you're going to be writing a fictional story, say 20, 30, 40 years after it actually occurred, there are going to be people who are alive who are going to know whether or not what you wrote was true. And Mark is saying, not only were there people in that boat, but there were several other boats around him. And so that there are other people who were probably still alive at that point who could testify as to whether this story was really true or not. So if Mark was trying to make something up, he was doing it in a really, really stupid way. And I think what he's trying to say is this actually happened. It's not just an encouraging, not just an inspirational sort of a story, but it's something that is absolutely true. And as a result of that, 
it can be a life-changing story, not only for the people who are involved in it, but also for us who are reading about it. So the Sea of Galilee is located in the center of a, of a number of different mountain ranges that are around it. And what would happen is winds would swoop down from the mountains and all of a sudden, while the, the, the sea itself might have normally been kind of calm and, and, and just not rough at all, you got the wind swooping down and these storms can come up all of a sudden. And these people, these men in the boat, are professional fishermen. They've spent their entire lives fishing on the Sea of Galilee. So they've been through dozens and dozens of storms. So they're not surprised when a storm comes up suddenly. And yet, for some reason, they were terrified of this particular storm, and they're fearing for their lives. And so we look at it and we say, this must have been one of the greatest storms on the Sea of Galilee that they had ever seen. And so they're just terrified, and they cry out, and they say, teacher, don't you care if we drown? And if you step back and look at it for a minute, if it weren't so serious, it'd almost be comical. You've got these professional fishermen who are panicking. They're fearing for their lives, and their rabbi is asleep on a cushion in the back of the boat. And they're like, Jesus, don't you care if we drown? It's almost comical as you look at that. And I can imagine Jesus kind of stretching his hands and waking up, and then look what happens here in, in, in verse 36. Jesus got up, he rebuked the wind and the waves, and he said, quiet, be still. And then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. Jesus says, like, like he's talking to a child, he just says, stop it, chill out, cut it out, stop it, be calm and stay calm. And what's amazing is immediately... Not only did the wind stop immediately, but the water became flat as glass immediately. If you've ever been on a lake in a storm, the, the wind can die down pretty quickly, but the waves keep going for several hours afterwards. But in this particular case, the wind stops and the waves stopped immediately. And his disciples are amazed by this. Jesus says to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified, and they asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. What's amazing about that is they were more scared after Jesus rescued them. They were more scared of Jesus than they were of this storm that could have killed them. What's going on with that? If you look over in Matthew's gospel, it's one of the other biographies of Jesus, Matthew tells the same story, slightly different perspective. And the way that he describes the response that the men had, he says, the men were amazed and they asked, what kind of a man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. At this point in their relationship with Jesus, they knew him first as a carpenter, the son of a carpenter who had become a rabbi. They knew him as a great teacher. In fact, he had just spent that entire day teaching them some of the most inspirational stories that they had ever heard. And they'd even seen him perform a number of different miracles, including turning water into wine, for example. So they knew him as a carpenter. They knew him as a rabbi. They knew him as a miracle worker. And they had a category in their worldview 
for carpenters. They had a category in their worldview for rabbis and for teachers. And they even had a category in their worldview for miracle workers. But they didn't have a category in their worldview for a human being who could control the sea. Because in their worldview, only God could control the sea. And they had no category for a man who was also God. And that's why they asked themselves, what kind of a man is this? And yes, they were scared of the sea, but they're terrified at this point when they realize this is not just a carpenter. This is not just a rabbi. This is not just a miracle worker. We don't understand what kind of a man this is. And that's because they were encountering the holiness of Jesus. They were encountering the uniqueness of Jesus. They were encountering the fact that Jesus was in a category by himself. And when they encountered the holiness of Jesus, their whole world was turned upside down, just like Isaiah's world was turned upside down when he encountered the holiness of God in the vision in the temple. Tim Keller who's a pastor in New York City. I know a number of you enjoy listening to podcasts and even visiting his church from time to time in New York City. Tim Keller talks about the unpleasantness of encountering God. He says, to get near to God is an unpleasant, a very unpleasant experience. And if you read throughout the Bible and you see different people encountering God, encountering him in his holiness, without exception, they're blown away. They're undone. They're ruined. They fall on their faces. They recognize their sinfulness. They recognize their brokenness. They're terrified of him because he is so different. He is so other. He is so set apart from who we are that we, when we encounter the holiness of God, we want to, in some sense, run and hide. But we're also attracted to him. And there's this tension because on the one hand, we're terrified of him, but on the other hand, there's something that draws us to him because we look and we see, for example, in Isaiah's vision, the the Lord magnificent, high and lifted up the train of his robe, filling the temple, and we're just like, wow, he is so awesome and so amazing. Jesus can calm the sea in a way that nobody else could ever possibly dream of doing. So we're drawn to him, and yet as we draw close, in some sense, we're repelled by him. So there's this tension there, and it's so difficult to explain if you've never experienced it. And in some sense, maybe the closest that, that I've come in a human sense is a time when I went to Niagara Falls, and it was, I was in high school, and our band took a trip. We were in a parade up near Niagara Falls, and I was really excited because I'd never seen Niagara Falls up close and personal before. And as we're driving up as the bus pulls up, we're in the parking lot, I'm walking over and I ran, you know, almost ran to get closer and see the falls and I'm just amazed both by the beauty but also the power of the water. And then I walked as close as I could and there was a railing just a few yards away from the river and I went right up to the edge of the railing and I positioned myself right where the water was going over the falls. And it was about six or eight feet deep there. It was crystal clear. You could see right down to the bottom. The water is rushing over thousands, tens and thousands of gallons every second. 
And I had to draw back because in some sense I was terrified by the power of that water. So I drew back from it. I was scared of it. But as soon as I stepped back, I wanted to get back closer to it because I was drawn by the beauty and the majesty and the power. And I get closer and I draw back and I get closer and I draw back. And in some sense, that's the way it is when we encounter the holy God. His holiness is both awesome and terrifying at the same moment. That's a little bit of what it's like to encounter the holiness of God because the closer that we get to him, the more we realize how big he is and how small we are, how powerful he is and how powerless we are, how holy and pure he is and how broken and sinful we are. But God doesn't leave us there. His goal isn't to destroy us. God's goal is to restore us. And I want to go back then to Isaiah's encounter with the holy God. And in verse 6 of, of Isaiah 6, Isaiah says, Then one of the seraphim, one of the angels, flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth, and he said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And when Isaiah encountered the holy God, he's terrified. He's overwhelmed with his sin. He's overwhelmed with his guilt. But God didn't leave him there. God graciously forgave Isaiah's sin, and he took away his guilt. And so the closer we draw to God, the more we become aware of our sin and guilt. But the closer we draw to God, the more we experience his grace and his love and his forgiveness and his cleansing from sin and the removal of guilt that we can enjoy if we've got a relationship with him. And what's, what we're seeing here in Isaiah is that God's grace is greater than our sin. He is more powerful than our sin. And the more that we recognize our need for him, the more we get to experience the incredible grace and love and forgiveness that he offers to us. And this same God who is so holy, so holy, that merely being in his presence was enough to undo Isaiah. God didn't have to say anything. And Isaiah just fell on his face, both terrified and cognizant also of his sin and his brokenness. This same God is also the God who loved us enough to send his son to die for us, to pay for our sins so that we could be restored to a right relationship with him. And that same Jesus who calmed the sea in a way that terrified, terrified his friends, is the same Jesus who calms their fears, calms our fears, and reassures us that our holy God loves us more than we could ever imagine. And his goal, his desire is not to scare us away from himself, to destroy us. His goal is to restore us and to draw us near to him. And he loves us more than we could ever imagine. Yes, he is powerful. 
He's awesome. He's holy. And being in his presence is some sen- in, in some sense terrifying. But being in his presence is in some sense as well reassuring and encouraging. And when we see ourselves in light of who he is, that's when we really understand who we are, who he has made us to be, and we're just overwhelmed with the awesome privilege of knowing him, of worshiping him, and of experience, experiencing both his incredible power, but also his incredible love and his grace and his forgiveness. In the minute, uh, the band is going to come back up, and they're going to lead us in a, uh, in a closing song. But as they're coming up, I want to read for you a passage uh, in one of the Psalms that the greatest king of Israel, Israel's King David, wrote about God and about his holiness in some sense. David writes, he says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. I look out on the universe, David says, and its vastness. And David had essentially compared to the knowledge that we had, David had such so little understanding of the vastness of the universe. And yet with the understanding that he had of the vastness and the glory and the splendor and the power of the universe, David says, God, you created all of this and you actually care about me? You actually want to have a relationship with human beings? You're so big and we're so small and yet you want to have a relationship with us. And so as we think about the creation that God has made, whether it's the oceans, whether it's the stars, whether it's the wind, whether it's the storms, whether it's the the beauty, whether it's all the different animals, the colors, the shapes, the sizes that God's created, as we think about those things and we realize that God is infinitely greater than they are because he created them, then we stop and we think, the creator of the universe wants to have a relationship with me, that is pretty amazing. And that's at least part of the reason why we bow before him, fall on our faces and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that You are a holy God, a glorious God, a majestic God, a splendid God. I thank you for the privilege that we have of worshiping you, of knowing you, of having a relationship with you. And I pray that this week and really every day, we would take time to slow down, to stop, to think about the incredible creation and let that point us to you pray that we would encounter your holiness, your majesty, your power, and that we would be changed by that. And I pray that as we are, we would continue to be drawn to you, grateful for the incredible love that you've shown us in sending us your son to be the savior of the world. We pray in his name. Amen.